Well, hi, everybody. It's Kim Winter from Logistics Executive Group again. Thanks for joining us in our series of uh, interviews with business leaders, not only across logistics and supply chain, but specifically in that area today. And um, I'm glad to be joined by a colleague based, uh, I think, here in Dubai. We'll hear from him in a second. But uh, education really varied, uh, as I think we'll hear, but uh, certainly at the upper end of education, uh, a lot of work and uh, qualifications out of Harvard um, and a couple of other senior institutions. Um, began work, I think, as an analyst and then moving through from Price Waterhouse, um, a couple of very major institutes around the world, um, McKinsey's, the Clinton Climate Initiative, I think was uh, one of the ports of call on the journey through. Um, and uh, then ending up uh, today in, in a role with uh, Agility, which is getting a lot of news at the moment, one of the larger uh, logistics players in the world uh, in the area of strategic planning uh, in Agility Logistics Parks. Uh, without further ado, it's my great pleasure to welcome with us one of my colleagues uh, around this part of the world, uh, Ronald Phillip. Welcome, Ronald. Thank you, Kim. It's a real pleasure to be here. Right. Thanks for joining us. And you know, I usually uh, start off by asking our guests a little bit about their early years, the formative years, where they were brought up uh, and entry into the uh, logistics field. How, how did it all unfold for you? Sure, Kim. So my early years were spent in Zambia in a small copper mining township. And then I got a scholarship to middle school in the UK and then continued in boarding school in Bangalore and then went to engineering school and business school. Uh, my first job was as an analyst with the World Bank, where I looked at infrastructure and transport projects across the developing world in Africa, South America, and Asia. And that's where I really developed a passion for solving problems in logistics, transport, real estate, and property in the developing world. So over the last two decades, that's been the common thread through my career first working in infrastructure finance and PwC's practice in South Asia. Lots of projects did not work out because of government and political risk. So I went back to the Kennedy School to study public policy and really built some of the soft skills, multi-party negotiations, leadership, communication, et cetera, that would help me uh, you know, in solving some of these complex problems. Uh, post the Kennedy School, I worked with the World Economic Forum's supply chain and transport industry, working on a lot of complex multi-stakeholder issues like enabling trade. There's some fantastic collaborations uh, that we were able to pull together uh, when it came when it came to, uh, to natural emergencies and something that we called uh, logistics emergency teams, where the UN, if they had a crisis anywhere, could call on a coalition of private sector logistics companies to bring aid to those uh, situations. So I was at the World Economic Forum for some time, and then I was with McKinsey and Company for six years, first in the US, and then uh, I moved to Dubai and focusing again on solving uh, um, top-level CEO and minister-level challenges in transport and infrastructure in the emerging markets. And then uh, over the last couple of years, I've been with uh, Agility, uh, leading strategy for the logistics parks business, which is essentially an industrial real estate business that focuses on the emerging markets. So I work with our management team on building and rolling out our strategy across uh, a diverse set of very interesting, but sometimes challenging markets. 
Well, you've covered a lot of ground, Ronald. Uh, for the sound of it, you should be about 60 or 70 years of age, but uh, you seem to keep yourself well stored over that period, so well done. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, you, you mentioned the, the World Economic Forum um, and the World Bank uh, and the United Nations, and uh, I'm not too sure whether you were there at the time, but uh, we were called upon in 2004 from Australia to, to employ a, a team of logistics specialists in Sri Lanka, Colombo Sri Lanka, and the world's biggest peacetime airlift uh, operation. And all of those organisations were there, as well were DHL, um, who were coordinating those disaster relief, air relief efforts. So we were there for, for two weeks and uh, uh, un unfortunate in the situation, but uh, it was great to see the collaboration that occurred. A lot of lessons were learned during that period by all those organisations as well in a magnitude disaster of that size. So, um, yeah, it was very interesting working when the PPPs all came together. You've become one of the preeminent infrastructure specialists around the globe in the area of infrastructure and providing the type of um, background and, and implementing the sort of policies and structures for logistics and supply chain to be able to flow, especially in the emerging markets. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about uh, what that really means, because when people, even in the industry, hear about logistics um, and hear about supply chain, they think about moving parts. But of course, quite often people forget about the fact or don't understand the, the, the realities of infrastructure, the investment that's required, the strategies that are required to provide things like uh, free zones and logistic parks. So talk to us a little bit about the development of logistics parks and especially in the, in the context of emerging markets. Sure, so logistics parks are a key part of the enabling infrastructure for uh, a lot of these businesses to flourish and to attract FDI. In the absence of our product, you know, logistics parks, typically a, a business would have to go and acquire land and go through that very difficult process and then build a facility and then operate out of that facility and obviously spend a lot of capital and energy and time in even acquiring land and building that facility. So with our logistics parks, we allow businesses to start operating from the word go by leasing uh, you know, high quality warehouse space from us and instead spending that capital on their core business. So that's the core value proposition. It's it's enabling infrastructure in the emerging markets. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. I, um, you know, in the early days when we came up here 20 years ago up into the Dubai area, um, one of the only areas you could really set up business was in a, in a free zone. And to this day, um, most of our business activities uh, and offices are based in the free zones uh, in this part of the world. Um, and of course, in, even in places like in Australia, where we call probably mature uh, economic markets, um, free zones and logistics parks in particular have been especially popular with uh, organisations setting up because they can, they can go to an enabler and uh, an investor that is already set up. In this case of Australia, the Goodman um, as logistic parks are, are very well known, and that company has since been rated being well over a billion dollars worth of organisations recently being pulled out, as I recall. So setting up all the infrastructure, having a plug and play, having the, the warehouse constructed or the 
roads and whatever else constructed so that a player can move in and not worry about that and take 5, 10, 25, 50, 100-year leases. Um, so how does that, you talked about the attraction of foreign direct investment, often challenging to get into emerging markets such as Africa and other parts of the world. Um, how does an organisation go around attracting investment in those sorts of plays? Uh, so, I mean, um, sorry, can you reframe the question, Kevin? I'm just, yeah, pause, just, huh? just interested, just interested yeah. to know about how logistics parks really, um, whether if they're not doing the investment necessarily themselves, uh, how do they attract investment uh, into logistics parks? Because usually it's, it's hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars required to put the infrastructure together, even put yeah. the warehouses in. So how do companies go around getting that sort of investment? Is it internal or is it external? Sure. So um, I think once we've gone into a country and set up a logistics park, the um, the demand attraction is a function of several things. First of all, I mean, a company needs to fundamentally want to be in that country. And then there's a strategic choice, whether they build or whether they, whether they lease. Now, mm -hmm. on the enabling side, there are a whole bunch of government agencies, uh, foreign direct investment uh, attraction agencies that try and make it easier for that company to invest in the country. But then it's a big choice of whether they want to build it themselves or lease from us. Um, I think most companies, when given the choice, would rather lease than go through the journey of building it themselves. So mm -hmm. uh, I think what we try and do is because we have a network already existing uh, network of logistics parks across the Middle East, Africa, and India, we have a very strong roster of existing customers that we know very well. So a lot of our customers, existing customers in the Middle East have asked us, can you please help us with the facility in Nigeria or in Ghana or in Egypt? So we have an existing number of customers that already uh, are excited by when we open up in a new market. But we also have to get the word out there that this value proposition exists. Because in a lot of markets, we are the first ever provider of grade A international standard warehousing. So it's completely new to the market. And there's an exercise that we have to go through of communicating that this value proposition now exists in the market, which means that we obviously sometimes have to communicate at the corporate headquarter level uh, because yeah. the folks at the national level might never have seen this product or this warehouse quality and might be a bit unfamiliar with how to best utilize that value proposition. Okay. Yeah, well, thanks for that. And, and I suppose that leads into... Another question that uh, was asked the other day in this in this area um, by one of our clients, and, and that was just in relation to emerging markets um, in regards to, I mean, we hear a lot about there being much more inexpensive labour in many emerging markets and many sort of uh, environments or ecosystems. Um, where, does, where does the issue of the preeminence now of, of uh artificial intelligence or particularly digitization and technology come into play. Uh, how, how does that balance out? I mean, a lot of mature economies where labor costs are so high, talent is, is difficult to get. And we're hearing that talent as a result of COVID and the, and the demand on logistics and supply chain at the moment. There is a shortage of talent I hear from my clients everywhere, every day around the world. Great for our recruitment business, but of course really challenging for a lot of our clients. Um, what, where do you see the play in terms of 
technology versus uh, less expensive labor in emerging markets. What's the trend there? So I think it's a heavily nuanced and it's a function of which country we're talking about because we operate across uh, markets from India to the Middle East and Africa. And sometimes it's a function of what market we're talking about, which industry, which sector that, that's a tenant in our business and which particular company. What we've seen already in our warehouses is that some of our tenants, for example, in the retail space in the Middle East, are already introducing uh, tremendous automation in their uh, facilities. And it's not necessarily the question of, of labor cost. It's really productivity and being able to operate much quicker and therefore respond to customer needs much quicker. If you think about e-commerce and how dramatically that's grown uh, in the last year due to the yeah. pandemic, the speed to the customer uh, has just increased so much. So therefore, it's Speed to the customer is more the, the the objective function than just cost of delivery and, and labor costs. So it's interesting because we're seeing this already uh, in some of our emerging markets uh, in the Middle East, uh, in Egypt, and I'm pretty sure it'll come uh, soon to some of the larger economies in Africa too. Okay. Yeah, no, look, interesting. And I, uh, I suppose the other question I've got is to what degree do governments play a role working with private sector on the, on the basis of the PPP for setting up of, uh, of an emerging area, emerging market infrastructure. Uh, the governments, you tend to go to governments and discuss about the value proposition and looking to get government support or uh, investment or sort of uh, discounts on, on what you're doing, or is that is it purely uh, capital at play, is it purely private sector investment? Um, I think the government is important for enabling uh, infrastructure in terms of policy support and the infrastructure that gets to our site in terms of the roads, in terms of power, et cetera. But we don't typically ask for discounts or any other favors on any other factors like land, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. If they can just make it easy for us and easy for our tenants to do business and provide uh, quality road infrastructure, quality power, that's 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 already a, a great start. Sure, sure. And, and is there a uh, is there a sort of a cutoff point um, to which you need to have baseline customers to go and do make a development somewhere? Um, if you're going to plot a land, it may be adjacent to a port, or obviously, say with e-commerce and more and more these days, warehouses and distribution centres need to be reasonably close to centres of population. So. Clearly, land is expensive, access is expensive. Um, do you tend to uh, look at a certain percentage of coverage of, of, of long to medium, medium to long-term investors to come in or clients to, to take up uh, tenancy? Or is, there, or is it just there's a strategy, this is what we're going to do and we'll build it and they'll come? Or is there is a bit more of a nuance to it than that? Yeah, so we've had to adapt that approach in different markets, because at least when it came to Africa and our logistics parks there, what we discovered is that people will only believe it when they see it. So what we've had to do is we build large logistics parks, uh, but we break those, break those down into phases. So we typically build a first phase speculatively 
without any customer commitments in some instances. And as we get going, as customers see the building actually come up and they believe that we will actually be open in, uh, in, in you know, when we say we will, then we start getting customer inquiries and then that's when these things start. But we have the risk appetite to build that first phase speculative. Now, this is built on a business case where we've done extensive research on the demand in that market on that particular location. Location is critical in our business. So once we've got a market where we think there's demand, and if the location is right, we're comfortable taking the risk on building that speculative first phase. Okay. Well, it sounds like a uh, not an industry for the faint-hearted. And certainly, as you're saying, data research playing uh, playing a huge part in what you're doing. And that, and that certainly resonates with what we're hearing on the corporate advisory side of our business, where um, as a result, whether it's been as a result of COVID or just the, the general growth of the market over the last 12 months, um, so many more customers are looking to plan out what they're doing on a 10 to 20 to 25 year horizon, as opposed to perhaps shorter term the other uh, strategy and the other major influence and trend that we're seeing is uh, companies going to asset light environments so that they are not necessarily having to be laboured with the costs of infrastructure, building themselves, making all those heavy capital investments up front. Um, and I wondered if you are seeing that there's been much of a trend over the last 12 months towards that? Has uh, there been a growth in, in logistics parks and three zones, for example, versus companies going it alone and doing it themselves? Or is it being pretty much uh, linear growth? So it's, there's a lot of nuance. I think in a lot of the African markets, there's been a strong preference to having owner-occupied facilities. But as there's an increased supply of quality stock to lease, there's an increase in companies leasing because that gives them much more flexibility and much more uh, you know, um, agility in terms of their markets. And they can, in the companies that are in our logistics parks, they have the flexibility to take more space, to reduce the space. Yeah. And I think more of the market will slowly realize that. Instead of building a, one facility of a certain size and being locked into that for 25 years, leasing just gives much, much more flexibility. And mm -hmm. I think as more quality stock becomes available in the markets, there'll be an increased trend towards leasing. At least that's what we're betting on. Yeah. And, and of course, you and I see that uh, in the residential. It's mirrored to the residential market in a lot of the places around the Middle East that we operate because... It, you do that phased approach and there's there's a release in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a gated community somewhere and then all of a sudden there's another release six months to a year later, there's another thousand apartments going. And so what I'm hearing you saying is that in the commercial market, especially in the, uh, the warehousing and distribution centre type market, that that's a similar trend, yeah? Yeah, totally. So look, uh, Ronald, I really appreciate you giving us some time today. That the area that you operate in is is an absolute key, formative foundation platform for organisations to operate, especially in the emerging markets that you talk about. Um, it enables companies and players to get into various markets and have an opportunity to serve customers with demands continuously dynamically changing and increasing in their in their requirements. So really appreciate you shedding a light on today uh, of what you do, what the organisation does and some of the trends in that market. Very informative. Uh, I, I always 
like to ask our guests a couple of quick questions um, before we wrap up. And and one of them is, I mean, you, you uh, certainly one of the more entrepreneurial um, people that I've dealt with in the industry for a while, and you, you've covered a lot of ground and seen a lot of different modelling and, and a lot of different uh, elements of the supply chain. Um, when you are dealing with people and bringing them into your organisation um, as, an, as an employer or somebody who's partnering with others, what are some of the characters that you like to look at in regards to evaluating whether to bring somebody in or to do business with somebody? What are the things you really look for? So I think to do, uh, to do well or to even in, to succeed in the emerging markets, you have to, one, have the flexibility and resilience because things keep changing every day. We, we live by Murphy's Law every day. It helps to be mission-driven or at least have some sort of passion for the emerging markets because, I mean, you sh- it's, it could be much easier working in a developed market. So for someone to choose to work in emerging markets, uh, it helps if you're mission-driven or there's some passion for emerging markets. Uh, a, high le- a high level of uh, ethical integrity is critical. Uh, in this in this space in the emerging markets, and um, yeah, someone who's entrepreneurial, who's flexible, who's has the problem solving mindset because it's constantly challenging. So we have to constantly uh, be on our toes, be resilient, uh, and solve problems. Awesome, and it's it's great advice. And I and I guess the final question I'd like to ask you is is for is for people entering, whether they be younger folks or whether they be in the middle of their careers and and want to come and join us in this world of logistics and supply chain. And, and God only knows that the talent shortage means that there needs to be a lot more people coming into our part of the world and our and the infrastructures that we operate. Um, tell us. One or two tips that you would have for somebody who would be starting their career, as I say, or wanting to enter into the area of logistics, what would be the tip or two that you would have for them to join the industry? What would, how would they go about it? So at least uh, in this space uh, where, I mean, emerging markets, real estate, where there's so little data, it really helps to get on the ground, uh, understand um, the customers, go look around the city, try and understand uh, and learn yourself on the ground because there really is so little data for you to understand, uh, I mean, remotely. Uh, the second is just engage heavily with customers and operators very early on so that you develop uh, a very close sense of what's working and what's not. And then I think also just have a mindset where there's just so much room for improvement. So the past is you're not wedded to the past. You have a big chance to shape the future in these markets. So I think there's that optimism and energy um, that that one needs to have for what one can change in the future. Well, sage advice from somebody who's uh, been on a very interesting journey. Uh, appreciate you sharing your thoughts and your journey with us today. Uh, I'm sure it's got a long way to go as yet. So uh, keep up the good work and, and uh, congratulations for all of the work you've done previously in your career in emerging markets. I know that you've contributed significantly, as you say, through organisations uh, and disaster relief and, uh, and areas of supporting governments and organisations to find breakthroughs and ways of making life better and quality of life better for, for people around the world that you've been working with. So thanks again for that and to all of our, uh, all of our listeners and, and viewers. Uh, thank you, especially for those in the supply chain helping us keep safe during these, uh, these interesting times. Uh, for those of you in the front line, 
uh, first responders and others in the medical professions uh, linked through with the supply chain on the broader economy. Thank you for all the work that you do. We really do appreciate it. Thank you, everybody, for your time. Ronald, thank you again. Uh, good to see you again. Absolute pleasure, and thank you for having me, Ken. Thanks, Ronald, and thanks, everybody. Thank you.